Hey, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. And as you're going there, let me just uh, remind you that today we are going to be finishing the series that we've been in over the last several weeks that we have simply called The Prevailing Wind, How the Holy Spirit Can Change a City. Uh, And that is what we have been discussing, how the Holy Spirit can change not only a city, but how the Holy Spirit can change a state, can change a region, can even change a nation if we will simply get out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives and our churches the way that He wills and the way that He desires. And we have been looking at this through the lens of Acts 19. And in Acts 19, we learn of how the Apostle Paul came into the city of Ephesus, which was located in ancient Asia Minor, which is uh, the modern-day Turkey today. And coming into this city, he introduces 12 disciples of Christ to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And having received the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that within the next two years, the gospel of Jesus Christ had been heard by every citizen living in Asia Minor at that day, which would have been uh, somewhere between three and four million people at that time. And this rapid, explosive uh, growth of the body of Christ in just two years can only be attributed to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had occurred two years prior to that. And that is certainly thrilling. It should be exciting to all of us because the same Holy Spirit who was poured out on those 12 disciples 2,000 years ago is the same Holy Spirit who is being poured out on believers today 2,000 years later. So that tells me that what God did then, He is still capable of doing today if we will allow Him to move in our lives as He wills in Jesus' name. And that is good news. Because as we have said throughout this entire series, that many of us are deeply concerned about the direction that we are going in as a nation. Uh, Because even though we are concerned, historically, our country has found itself in desperate times before, but these desperate times have always provided the Christians the opportunity to humble themselves and pray, and seek the face of God, and turn from their wicked ways. And as they did, historically, God heard their prayers from heaven, forgave their sins, and healed their land. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? It should, because it's in your Bible. Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Can I tell you that this is God's recovery plan for every nation. The recovery of the United States of America is not going to begin come November election day. It is not going to come through Republicans and Democrats. It's not going to come through conservatives and liberals. It is not going to come by the man who lives in the White House. It is going to come here in the house of Almighty God when His people humble themselves and pray and seek His face and turn from their wicked ways. God promises I'll hear from heaven. I'll not only forgive your sin, but out of the church will flow healing to the land in Jesus' mighty name. The healing of this nation begins here in Jesus' mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise in this house? Now last week I talked about the danger that always occurs when Christianity becomes popular. And again, especially if you were not here last week, you may argue that and say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Kurt, don't we want Jesus to be popular Don't we want the Christian faith to be popular? Not in the way we understand popularity today. Because when you are seeking popularity, you are concerned about opinions and polls. How many of you know God is not concerned about opinion polls and what people think about Him? God only is interested in speaking truth. 
And the truth is not always popular. The truth is not always uh, something that people want to hear. It's offensive to them. But God is interested in truth because men and women will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Even if it offends you initially, if you believe upon it, it will set you free. And so the gospel was never really meant to be popular. Jesus was never meant to be a pop icon. And it's dangerous when the church seeks popularity and wants to be popular in the times that they live in. Because when Christianity becomes popular, people begin to see faith as a formula or they see it as a means to an end and they remove it from its proper context, which is always a relationship with God. Christianity is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It is not a way to have your best life now. Christianity has always been and will always be about a powerful, personal, and intimate relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is not a pursuit of power. And any power that is actually available to us as believers is only available to those who know Him personally, who know Him intimately, who walk with God and have actually been authorized by Him to use His power, not for their glory and their benefit, but for the glory and for the advancement of the kingdom of Almighty God. And this was graphically illustrated for us last week in what we studied, and I want to read it again here this morning because it sets the stage for what I believe the Lord has laid on my heart today. It comes in Acts 19 and verse number 13 where you read this, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you or we cast you out, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Notice that they took it upon themselves to do this, which means they were not authorized to do what they were doing. And they said, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, which tells us that they had no relationship with either Paul or Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You know, Scripture sometimes fails to really tell us how terrifying an event really is. But can I tell you that this was much more terrifying than we could ever imagine. This was more terrifying than the exorcist. This was the real deal. And as you can imagine, this caused a great stir in the city of Ephesus. But I want you to look at what happened as a result of this event. Verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. So everyone heard of this. Everyone means all believers and all those who had yet to believe. There was no one living in Ephesus that had not heard of what had happened here. And the Bible says that fear fell on them all, believers and non-believers alike. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now here's what I want to do this morning. Last week I had shared with you Again, what happens when Christianity becomes popular and the dangers that are associated with that. And I shared with you how when it becomes popular, there are always going to be counterfeits. There are always going to be fakers. There are always going to be those who perpetrate fraud in the earth, if you will. Today what I would like to do is talk to you about what a genuine move of God looks like. As we close out this series, I want you to know what 
the characteristics of a genuine move of the Holy Spirit looks like. Because I am of the opinion that in these last days, God is going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. I do believe that there is going to be a last days awakening before the coming of the Lord. Is there anyone who believes that with me? I, I just believe that that is coming. But I happen to believe that running parallel to the real move of God is going to be a counterfeit move of God. Is going to be a fraudulent move of God. And it will deceive many. And for that reason, I want you to see from this portion of Scripture what the characteristics of a genuine move of God are. How you will know when the Holy Spirit is truly at work. There are no less than four that are here in this text, and those are the four that we're going to look at. But I want you to know in your heart that there is a genuine move of God, but it will always have these four characteristics in them. First of all, I would tell you that when the Holy Spirit is truly at work, the fear of the Lord will be present. Whenever the Holy Spirit is truly at work, the fear of the Lord will be present in the house and in the individual. The Bible says that as a result of hearing what had happened, fear fell on them all. And again, All means all. It means all those who had believed upon Christ, all those who have yet not received Christ as their Savior, but the fear of God fell upon them all. Because all of a sudden, with this one event, the hearts of men and women were gripped with the reality of a very real enemy, of the fact that they were incapable of dealing with this enemy, and they came to recognize that only Jesus was truly able to save them. For the very first time in their lives, the spiritual realm was opened up to them. And that which they only knew in superstition became a reality. Remember what I said to you last week. This was a city that was given over to idol worship. Most of them, if not the majority of Ephesus, worshipped a goddess named Diana or Artemis. And as a result of their worship to her, they practiced black magic and sorcery and witchcraft and other sexual deviant activities. And so this was a city that was given over to superstition, though they had never seen anything real happen. They talked a lot about it, but they had never seen anything real. Well, now in one moment, God had opened up the curtains, if you will, to the spiritual realm, and they became aware, wait a minute, there really are demons. There is a real sovereign God. We are powerless against these demon spirits, but there is a name that is above all other names. For the first time, they begin to see the supernatural, and as a result of it, The fear of the Lord came upon them. Wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, you will always find a reverent, worshipful awe and fear of God. You know, the book of Acts, as I have mentioned to you on a number of occasions, is the historical record of the first 30 years of church history. And if you read it, you will recognize that it details how the fear of the Lord prevailed in the hearts of the true believers. In fact, when the Holy Spirit was initially poured out on the 120 that had gathered in the upper room uh, there in Jerusalem, it says in Acts 2 and verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So as God begins to manifest his supernatural presence in a natural way in the earth, the Bible says that fear came upon every soul. That is a far cry from what we see today. And I realize that maybe I'm more sensitive to this than many of you because of my position as a pastor. But today, when I go on YouTube and I, and I look at these quote-unquote healings and signs and wonders that are taking place in churches, you've got people with their cell phones out taking video and pictures of what? I don't know, but they, they do and they laugh and they giggle and there is a levity in their heart. But when I look at the Bible, whenever angels appear, whenever 
whatever signs and wonders took place, men and women fell before God as if they were dead because all of a sudden the reality of the spiritual realm was there and it caused them to fear and tremble in the sight of Almighty God. The Bible introduces us in Acts chapter 5 to a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Many of you know their story. They collaborated together and lied to the Holy Spirit of the church about a certain uh, amount of money that they were giving. And when Peter the Apostle questioned them, the Bible says that Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. God judged him immediately. And then the Bible says, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. A similar judgment came upon his wife, Sapphira, not long after that. And when this took place, it says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And then when you come to Acts 9 and verse 31, you read, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And so all through the book of Acts, you can see how there was a fear, a reverential awe and worship for God that settled upon the hearts of true believers that kept them in a place of holiness, that kept them in a place of prudence. Everyone realized that God was watching them, that God was listening to them. And so they were concerned about how they dressed. They were concerned about where they went. They were concerned about how they lived because they knew that one day they would give an account before God for their life. A true move of God, a true awakening, a true revival will always be marked by an increase of reverence and worshipful fear of God. And I've got to tell you folks, I've been in church all of my life and I find the lack of the fear of the Lord in the church and among Christians today very disturbing if not alarming. It is, it is just deeply concerning to me. And I see it everywhere. I see it in the church at large. In how today churches are more concerned about offending the sinner than they are in offending God. There are pastors that will not stand in their pulpits and preach the unadulterated word of God because they're afraid of offending a sinner. But they have never considered that keeping them from the word of God, they're offending the Lord God Almighty. I was so grieved in my heart this past week when I was reading and I saw the images of a mega church in New York City that was welcoming Uh, some people that had come around the, the country to a conference that they were doing. And right there on their stage to welcome all of the guests, they, they did a tribute to New York and they had someone come up and sing New York, New York and they had other iconic images and people portrayed on the stage. That's one thing. But then the youth pastor came out who was dressed or undressed, if you will, like the naked cowboy came out, and and, you know, some of you may think I'm old-fashioned, but I'm going to tell you folks, that is a pulpit where the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be preached. This is where God is calling sinners to himself. We have turned it into Disneyland. Folks, can I tell you, right now, we got to get some fear of God back into the church. This is not a place to entertain the flesh. It is a place for men and women to get right with God in Jesus' name. But I see the lack of fear in professing Christians where today they they have little concern of the heart of God. They have little concern about what he thinks about anything. And what we've done today is we have reduced God to the grandfather that cannot say no to his grandchildren rather than the almighty God and the judge who we will all one day stand before and give an account of our life who said, I will render to each one according to their deeds. I am thankful that God loves me, but his love is not a license. His love humbles me because who am I that he would love me? It should cause me to tremble that he would love me and give me the opportunity to serve him and him alone you know when we talk about the fear of the lord it's often misunderstood when when the bible speaks of fearing god it's not talking about being afraid of him 
If you're afraid of him, you won't draw near to God. And God wants us to have a relationship with him. When the Bible speaks of fearing God, it is speaking more of having such a, an awareness of his glory, of his splendor, of his majesty, of his purity, of his grace, of his holiness, that literally we tremble at the thought of bringing anything into his presence that would grieve and offend the heart of God. When I think of the fear of God, it's not that I'm afraid of Him. I am afraid of offending His heart, of grieving His Holy Spirit. And it causes me to tremble in how I live because I honor Him above my own self in Jesus' mighty name. And that reverence will always be present when the Holy Spirit is truly at work. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2 and verse number 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't take it lightly, he's saying. As you work out this salvation on a daily basis, don't take it lightly, but with fear and trembling, work it out, knowing that you will give an account of it before God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse number 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, if we tremble in the fear of the Lord God, we will cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of not only our spirit, but of our flesh, and consistently seek to perfect holiness which is separation from this world. Folks, we are not to be like this world. We're to be different. And that is seen in those who fear the Lord. Every time the Holy Spirit is at work, the fear of the Lord comes back to the body of Christ. Secondly, when the Holy Spirit is at work, Jesus will be magnified. Jesus will be magnified. A true revival, a true awakening will always magnify Jesus, will always get our eyes back upon Christ. As I said to you last week, the seven sons of Sceva had attempted to devalue the name of Jesus by using his name only as an incantation, by using his name only as a magical phrase, They were devaluing his name. They were cheapening his glorious and holy name as even many do today when they say the name of Jesus and yet live a life that in no way represents Christ at all. But that is why, if you remember last week, I said to you, that's why I believe that judgment must first begin in the house of God. And I believe it is happening even now because God is exposing the fakes. He's exposing those who are Christians in name only so that he can rescue his wonderful name back from those who are fraudulent and bring it back to those who truly love and honor Christ so that his name may be magnified again in Jesus' name. Jesus actually told us that the work of the Holy Spirit would be to glorify the name of Jesus. In John chapter 16 and verses 13 and 14, it says, However, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. Say that with me. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Can I just tell you that Jesus made it clear that when the Holy Spirit came, he would not do anything to draw attention to himself. That the Holy Spirit would do everything that he could possibly do to glorify Christ that would make sure that his name was exalted, that he took center stage, that he took preeminence. And so I can tell you today that any so-called move of God that centers on the Holy Spirit is not of God. 
Any move of God that centers upon signs and wonders and miracles and men and women are going after them rather than Jesus is not a move of God. Any so-called move of God that centers on a man, on a church, on a style, on a preference, on a certain way of singing is nothing more than just exaggerated entertainment. Because a true move of God's Holy Spirit will always exalt Jesus, will always lift Him up, will always draw men and women to Him because only Jesus can save, only Jesus can heal, only Jesus can deliver. And there is no other name in this universe that is worthy of praise than the name of Jesus Christ. Can somebody give Him all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name? That word magnify, it actually means to enlarge. Uh, Maybe modern day vernacular would be to blow up, like to blow up a picture. I was thinking about that over the weekend. When you have a picture that you want to see more clearly, what do you do? You enlarge it. You blow it up because you want to draw the attention to one person there uh, primarily. And that is the idea of being a Christian. I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? Shouldn't we be living our lives in such a way that Christ is being enlarged in us, that he is being blown up so that no way are men and women seeing us because the world doesn't need another Kurt. The Lord, the, the world doesn't need to see another Matt. The world needs to see Jesus high and lifted up. And I want to make sure that he's magnified in me. In Jesus' name. I love what what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. I love this. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You know what Paul was saying there? He was saying, the only reason I would ever be ashamed is if I fail to magnify Jesus in my body, whether it is in life or death. I love that. Paul said, my life is only here to magnify Jesus Christ. I only have air in my lungs to glorify Christ, to glorify and magnify Him in my marriage, in my family, in my conduct, in how I live among this world and unbelievers. I want to make sure that I am always living my life even if I die in a way that his name would be magnified and glorified. Paul says, as I live, I want to live in such a way that his name is magnified, that when they see me living, they say, Jesus is alive in them. But even if I die, I want all of those who martyred me to say, he died with peace, he must know Jesus in his heart. Whether we live or die, folks, it should always be to magnify the name of Jesus Christ Because there is no one like our God in Jesus' name. Come on, can you give him praise? Bless him. And shame on us if we don't. The third thing I want you to see is that when the Holy Spirit is at work, repentance will flow. A genuine move of God will always bring forth repentance. Where the Holy Spirit is at work, repentance of hidden sin will begin to happen. No longer will men and women be comfortable hiding their sin, but they will come confessing it when the Holy Spirit is at work. I know this because of what Jesus again said about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16 and verse number 8, he says this, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When the Holy Spirit is at work, he convicts us of our hidden sin. And where there is conviction, you will always find genuine repentance. I want you to listen to our text again. He says there, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic, make note of that word, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I want you to notice several things with me here. First of all, notice that these were all believers. We would immediately think that it was talking about those who did not know Christ coming and repenting. But it says right there in our text, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. These were Christians. These were men and women who had already received Christ and as such had repented in a general sense for their sins collectively. But it was now only in their growth and their development and as their eyes became more and more open to the spiritual realm that they became fully aware of the depth of their sin. The effect that sin had had upon the heart of God, on others, and even themselves. And being convinced of them and convicted of them, they repented of them once and for all, not only confessing those sins, but forsaking them altogether. And the reason that I point that out, folks, is because it is not too subtle of a way of God reminding us that repentance is not an event we show up to. Repentance is a journey that we are on for the rest of our days until Christ comes. Today there is a popular teaching out there that you only have to repent when you receive Christ as your Savior and then all of your future sins are already under the blood. You never need to repent. I do not know what Bible they're reading, but it is certainly not the Bible that we are preaching from today. Because when you read the Word of God, if there is one thing you know, is that our past sins and our present sins are forgiven. And there is forgiveness provided for our future future sins, but we must still come through repentance to a holy God in Jesus' name. It is true that when we receive Christ as our Savior, we repent of all of our sin. We know that, but we're doing that collectively. But as we grow in the Lord, then our sins start coming back to us. And sometimes it's not the enemy. Sometimes it is God bringing back those things, not to condemn us, but to actually have us deal with them on an individual basis so that we can break free from them once and for all. That's the reason many of us keep falling back into the same sins over and over again because we have never relived the horrible nature of our sin in the eyes of God. Folks, we need to walk in repentance so that we can be free indeed in Jesus' mighty name. Doesn't it stand to reason that the more Jesus is magnified in your life, that you'll become more keenly aware of the true condition of your heart and that you can just repent of that and be free in Jesus' name. The second thing I'd like you to see here is that repentance involves both confessing and forsaking. They didn't come just confessing their sin. They didn't come just telling of their involvement with black magic and sorcery and witchcraft. But they actually went into their homes, gathered up the books of their sorcery, and brought them to a burning where they burned them once and for all. So here, literally, is the idea. They were saved. They'd accepted Christ as their Savior. And they were no longer practicing black magic. We know that. But their books were still on their bookshelves. They still had it in their house. And as long as those things were in their home, there was always a bridge back to their past. And they said, it's not enough for us to just come confessing what we used to do. We're going to bring all the paraphernalia and we're going to burn it because we are through with it. We are burning our bridges. We are not going back. We are going forward in Christ. We are never returning to our sin. And folks, can I tell you that this is the missing element in repentance in the 21st century. Because today we make it about confessing sin, but not about forsaking sin. Many of us say we're sorry, but nothing ever changes. 
Because we think it's all right to say, God, forgive me, but just to keep falling back into it over and over and over again. At some point, you got to get tired of it and say, I'm not going back. I'm going to get rid of this once and for all. It is for Christ I live forevermore in Jesus' name. And sometimes that means you got to get really determined. It means you got to get militant in your own life. Listen to what Jesus said if you don't believe that. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. It's reminiscent of what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12 and verse number 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. What he was saying there is, if necessary, shed blood to come out of sin once and for all. We trivialize sin today, but in those days Jesus said, pluck it out, cut it off. And he wasn't talking about mutilating your body either. What he was simply saying is, whatever it is that causes you to stumble back into sin, whatever it is that causes you to be dragged back into that iniquity, you've got to cut it out, you've got to pluck it out, because it would be better for you to spend the rest of your life without it and be with Christ for all of eternity than to keep stumbling into that sin and put your soul in jeopardy. Folks, it is time for us to come out from this sinful generation and the spirit of this age and be separate unto God. In Jesus' mighty name. And the third thing that I want you to see here is again the severity of this, the seriousness. I, I, I just don't understand how it ever got into the church where we think sin is not a big deal anymore. I mean, you've got Christians that just look at you and say, Oh, yeah, you know, I've been I've been struggling with that for 20 years. But Jesus loves me. Well, actually, Jesus said, if you love him, you would keep his commandments. We don't believe in sinless perfection here. I've never, I've never said that because we're Christians, we're not going to stumble. But folks, when you keep stumbling in the same area over and over again, at some point, it's not stumbling anymore. It's rebellion, and you're using God's grace as a way to keep doing what you want to do but not have to pay any penalty for it. This is serious. And the seriousness of it is actually seen in the cost of those things that, was, that were burned. They said it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver, which, and there's argument on this, but most scholars agree that in today's economy, that would be somewhere between three and four million dollars. They just burned it up. And I remember what, remember what uh, Judas said? He says, this could have been sold for profit. Listen, we're not selling these things for profit. We're through with it once and for all. And it just reminds us that it will cost you something to repent. Some of you have money in the bank right now that really doesn't belong to you. You stole it by deceitful ways. You cheated on your taxes. You cheated somebody in a deal. And you went to God and said, Lord, forgive me. And you think it's all done. God says, no, restore it back to them. Pastor, I don't have the money to do that. Well, that's not my problem and it's not God's problem. He says, restore it anyway. For some of you, it's going to cost you relationally. Because you've got friends and people that you're close to that you love them, and, and I'm not telling you you stop loving them, but they are ungodly, and as long as they're in your life, they keep dragging you back to that same sin over and over again, and at some point, you just got to say, I love you, but I can't be with you, because my relationship with God is more important to me than all of my other relationships, and when I'm with you, it drags me back. We've got to burn some bridges, folks. It's costly. But that's what repentance is all about. The cost is also reflected in that one word I told you to mark, magic. Now, most of us, 
I don't believe, <laughs> you know, read horoscopes. I don't think that, we, that we're doing Ouija boards or anything else like that. I would pray you're not, that you understand the, the demonic that is behind that. But it's much more insidious than you think. The Greek word for magic there is only used one other time in the whole New Testament. That's significant. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where it is giving the various qualifications of widows receiving aid from a church. And it makes this distinction between the elderly uh, widows and the younger widows. And what he says is that the younger widows tend to drift away. And this is what he says. And besides they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Do you know that the Greek word for busybody is the same Greek word in Acts 19 for magic? You say, Pastor Kerr, what does that mean? That means that in the eyes of God, gossip, slander, meddling in the affairs and business of others, being a whisperer, a backbiter, one who bears tales, who is a tale bearer, in the eyes of the Lord, it is the same as practicing witchcraft and sorcery. In the eyes of God, you might as well play with a Ouija board if you're going to be given over to gossip. So when we talk about witchcraft in the church, we're not necessarily talking about putting a pentagram in the middle of the sanctuary. Witchcraft in the church can be just people who are given over to gossip. You're a witch. You're a warlock. You're a sorcerer in the eyes of God. Folks, listen. This gets right down to where we live. This is about what we're watching what we're listening to, where we're going, what we're wearing. People say, Pastor, wait a minute, where's freedom? Freedom is coming and being submitted to God, not living any way you want to live. If you want this nation to change, it's got to change here first. We've got to come out from this world and be separate when the Holy Spirit is moving, there's real repentance. And then finally, when the Holy Spirit is at work, the Word of God will take preeminence. Wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, the Word of God will always take preeminence. Listen to what it says in Acts 19 and verse number 20. So the Word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I love that. One translation actually says it this way. In this way, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. In this way, which means that all of the other things were consistently happening, and as a result of their happening, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. As the Holy Spirit awakened the fear of the Lord, as the name of Jesus was magnified, as the Holy Spirit led men and women into true repentance, it was the Word of God that grew mightily and prevailed. And the Word of the Lord in that day was not the Bible because they didn't have the Bible. It was the Old Testament Scriptures and it was the Word that was being spoken by the apostles that was being confirmed with signs following. And as these men and women reverently worshipped the Lord in fear and trembling, as they sought to magnify the Lord in their bodies, and they came clean of their sins and abandoned them, it was then that the Word of God grew mightily and prevailed. What does that mean? It means that the Word of God growing mightily, it means dominion. The word mightily means dominion. It just simply saying is that the Word of God was growing in their lives to such an extent that it started to dominate their lives. That the Word of God dominated their thinking. That the Word of God dominated their affections. That the Word of God dominated their lives. And how they approached 
the, the various choices and decisions. It means that they defaulted to the word of God in everything. And the Bible says that that word mightily also means manifested power. So when it says it grew mightily, it grew until the power of the word was actually manifested in their lives. I don't know about you folks, but that is what I want it to be said about me, is that the power of this gospel is manifested in how I live, in how I conduct myself, that it's not just a dead book, but you can look and say, that's a man of the word of God. That's how we should be living. And it says that that continued until it prevailed. And the word prevail literally means to overcome. It means that a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit has been overcome by the word of God. They don't live for themselves, but they live to honor what God has said in Jesus' mighty name. And this impact was on every single person that was calling upon the name of the Lord. And it began to take such a hold in the city that it began to impact the very city that they lived in. Watch this. You've got to love this part. And about that time, this starts at verse number 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way, which is what they called Christianity in that day. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So he was a very wealthy uh, craftsman, if you will. He called all of them together with the workers of similar occupation, and he said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade of making little small silver shrines of Diana. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, listen to this, but throughout almost all of Asia, three or four million people, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that there are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling to dis to disrepute, disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. That means that within two years of the Holy Spirit come upon 12 men, they had crippled the economy and they had upended all worship to Diana because the Spirit of God was now upon them. The economy was affected. False religion was shut down because the power of the Holy Spirit was unleashed. One man at a time was being transformed until it began to affect the economy of the whole region. What I want you to see today and what was on my heart a couple of weeks ago is that it didn't matter what was legal. It didn't matter what was culturally accepted. It didn't matter what was tolerated, what was promoted, or what was taught in the classroom or even in the university. When the Holy Spirit came to 12 disciples living in that city, it began to bring the fear of the Lord God in. The name of Jesus was exalted. Men and women repented, and it was the word of the Lord that grew mightily and ultimately prevailed in that city. And what we've got to hear in 2000 2016 is that we are not going to change this country by picketing, by boycotts, by writing letters to congressmen and threatening to take our business elsewhere. Folks, all of that might have a place, but it is never going to change anything and is equivalent to, to rushing hell with nothing but a squirt gun. But if we as believers fear the Lord more than death or even our own comfort level, if we will magnify Jesus Christ, if we'll repent of our evil ways, then I believe that God will come to this country. He will change lives one by one. They'll be saved, healed, and delivered. And folks, at that moment, it won't matter what's legal. It won't matter what's promoted. It won't matter what's acceptable, what is practiced. It won't matter what bathroom you go into. It'll all become irrelevant because lives will be changed and they won't do those things anymore because greater is He living in them than he that is in them world. Come on, folks. Can you say amen to that? In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, that's what it's all about. I don't have to stand outside of an abortion clinic. I just got to lead young men and young ladies to Christ, and they won't be pregnant. They'll wait until marriage. Folks, that's how God changes a city.
In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, come on, give Him praise. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Hallelujah. Sit down, I'm not done yet. <laughs> no, I just got to, I, I, I'm almost done. I just want to say this to you. In fact, you know, Will, come, come there. I just want to say this. Look, I know it's hard. I mean, look, we, we live in a difficult hour. I mean, it's easy to start giving up when you see the Supreme Court doing what it's doing. And you hear the weak attempts of our Congress and our president. I mean, it's just laughable at some point. And you get discouraged and you feel like, why do I try anymore? It's easy to get discouraged when you see the way the church is going in this day. And we get weary. But folks, I want to remind you how this is going to end. I want to remind you, lest you grow weary of how this is all going to come together. Because this is what my Bible says. Now I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, I want to tell you, you may grow weary and we may lose a battle now and then. And we may lose a skirmish from time to time. But I've read the end of this book. And in the end, it is the Word of God that is going to grow mightily and is going to prevail in Jesus' mighty name. Don't you dare give up. Our God has already won the war and we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Come on, stand to your feet and give Him praise. Come on, give Him a shout of praise in this house this morning. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We worship you almighty God. Hallelujah. Can you lift your hands? Can you lift your voices to Him? And just give Him praise in this house. We glorify You, Lord. We magnify Your name, Almighty God. There is none like You, O God. Hallelujah. I want every believer in this house that can to just come to this altar right now and just say, Lord, here am I. Baptize me anew and afresh. Whatever You want me to do, God, I want to be a part of what You're going to do in these last days. Come on, just come and lift your hand up before the Lord and say, Father, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll go whatever you want me to go. I'll say whatever you want me to say. Just lift your hands up to Him. Hallelujah. Just say, Lord, here am I. Send me, O God.